prefatory of the lost continent this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by alan winteroud the lost continent by c j cutcliffe hine prefatory the legatees of deucalion we were both of us not a little stiff as a result of sleeping out in the open all that night for even in grand canary the dewfall and the comparative chill of darkness are not to be trifled with for myself on these occasions i like a bit of a run as an early refresher but here on this rough ground in the middle of the island there were not three yards of level to be found and so as coppinger proceeded to go through some sort of dumbbell exercises with a couple of lumps of bristly lava i followed his example coppinger had done a good deal of roughing it in his time but being a doctor of medicine among other things he takes out a new degree of some sort on an average every other year he is great on health theories and practices them like a religion there had been rain two days before and as there was still a bit of stream trickling along the bottom of the barranca we went down there and had a wash and brushed our teeth greatest luxury imaginable a toothbrush on this sort of expedition now said coppinger when we had emptied our pockets there's precious little grub left and it's none the better for being carried in a local spanish newspaper yours is mostly tobacco ashes it'll get worse if we leave it we've a lot more bad scrambling ahead of us that was obvious so we sat down beside the stream there at the bottom of the barranca and ate up all of what was left there was a ten-mile tramp to the fonda at st brigida where we had set down our traps and as coppinger wanted to take a lot more photographs and measurements before we left this particular group of caves it was likely we should be pretty sharp set before we got our next meal and our next taste of the patron's splendid old country wine my faith if only they knew down in the english hotels in las palmas what magnificent wines one could get with diplomacy up in some of the mountain villages the old vintage would become a thing of the past in a week now to tell the truth the two mummies he had gathered already quite satisfied my small ambition the goat skins in which they were sewn up were as brittle as paper and the poor old things themselves gave out dust like a puffball whenever they were touched but you know what coppinger is he thought he'd come upon traces of an old gaunch university or sacred college or something of that kind like the one there is on the other side of the island and he wouldn't be satisfied till he'd ransacked every cave in the whole face of the cliff he'd plenty of stuff left for the flashlight thing and twenty-eight more films in his kodak and said we might as well get through with the job then as make a return journey all on purpose so he took the crowbar and i shouldered the rope and away we went up the ridge of the cliff where we had got such a baking from the sun the day before of course these caves were not easy to come at or else they would have been raided years before coppinger who on principle makes out he knows all about these things says that in the old gouanche days they had ladders of goatskin rope which they could pull up when they were at home and so keep out undesirable callers and as no other plan occurs to me perhaps he might be right anyway the mouths of the caves were in a more or less level row thirty feet below the ridge of the cliff and fifty feet above the bottom and spanish curiosity doesn't go in much where it cannot walk now laddering such caves from below would have been cumbersome but a light knotted rope is easily carried and though it would have been hard to climb up this 
our plan was to descend on each cave mouth from above and then slip down to the foot of the cliffs and start again ab initio for the next coppinger is plucky enough and he has a good head on a height but there is no getting over the fact that he is portly and nearer fifty than forty-five so you can see he must have been pretty keen of course i went first each time and got into the cave mouth and did what i could to help him in but when you have to walk down a vertical cliff face fly fashion with only a thin bootlace of rope for support it is not much real help the man below can give except offer you his best wishes i wanted to save him as much as i could and as the first three caves i climbed to were small and empty seeming to be merely store places i asked him to take them for granted and save himself the rest but he insisted on clambering down to each one in person and as he decided that one of my granaries was a prison and another a pot-making factory and another a schoolroom for young priests he naturally said he had much reliance on my judgment and would have to go through the whole lot himself you know what these thoroughgoing archaeologists are for imagination but as the day went on and the sun rose higher coppinger began clearly to have had enough of it though he was very game and insisted on going on much longer than was safe i must say i didn't like it you can see the drop was seldom less than eighty feet from the top of the cliffs however at last he was forced to give it up i suggested marching off to santa brigida forthwith but he wouldn't do that there were three more cave openings to be looked into and if i wouldn't do them for him he would have to make another effort to get there himself he tried to make out he was conferring a very great honor on me by offering to take a report solely from my untrained observation but i flatly refused to look at it in that light i was pretty tired also i was soaked with perspiration from the heat my head ached from the violence of the sun and my hands were cut raw with the rope coppinger might be tired but he was still enthusiastic he tried to make me enthusiastic also look here he said there's no knowing what you may find up there and if you do lay hands on anything remember it's your own i shall have no claim whatever very kind of you but i've got no use for any more mummies done up in goatskin bags bah that's not a burial cave up there don't you know the difference yet in the openings now be a good fellow it doesn't follow that because we've drawn all the rest blank you won't stumble across a good find for yourself up there oh very well i said as he seemed to set on it and away i stumbled over the fallen rocks and along the ledge and then scrambled up by that fissure in the cliff which saved us the two-mile round which we had to take at first i wrenched out the crowbar and jammed it down in a new place and then away i went over the side with hands smarting worse at every new grip of the rope it was an awkward job swinging into the cave mouth because the rock above overhung or else what came to the same thing it had broken away below but i managed it somehow though i landed with an awkward thump on my back and at the same time i didn't let go of the rope it wouldn't do to have lost the rope then coppinger couldn't have flicked it into me from where he was below now from the first glance i could see that this cave was of different structure to the others they were for the most part mere dens rounded out anyhow this had been faced up with cutting tools so that all the angles were clean and the sides smooth and flat the walls inclined inwards to the roof reminding me of an architecture i had seen before but could not recollect where and moreover there were several rooms connected up with passages i was pleased to find that the other cave openings which coppinger wanted me to explore 
were merely the windows or the doorways of two of these other rooms. Of inscriptions or markings on the wall there was not a trace, though I looked carefully, and except for bats the place was entirely bare. I lit a cigarette and smoked it through. Coppinger always thinks one is slurring over work if he has got through it too quickly. And then I went to the entrance where the rope was, and leaned out and shouted down my news. He looked up a very anxious face. Have you searched it thoroughly? he bawled back. Of course I have. What do you think I've been doing all this time? No, don't come down yet. Wait a minute. I say, old man, do wait a minute. I'm making fast the Kodak and the flashlight apparatus on the end of the rope. Pull them up and just make me half a dozen exposures. There's a good fellow. Oh, all right, I said, and hauled the things up and got them inside. The photographs would be absolutely dull and uninteresting, but that wouldn't matter to Coppinger. He rather preferred them that way. One has to be careful about halation in photographing these dark interiors. But there was a sort of ledge, like a seat, by the side of each doorway, so I lodged the camera on that to get a steady stand, and snapped off the flashlight from behind and above. I got pictures of four of the chambers this way, and then came to one where the ledge was higher and wider. I put down the camera, wedged it level with scraps of stone, and then sat down myself to recharge the flashlight machine. But the moment my weight got on that ledge, there was a sharp crackle, and down I went half a dozen inches. Of course, I was up again pretty sharply, and snapped up the Kodak just as it was going to slide off to the ground. I will confess, too, I was feeling pleased. Here, at any rate, was a gouache cupboard of sorts and as they had taken the trouble to hermetically seal it with cement, the odds were that it had something inside worth hiding. At first there was nothing to be seen but a lot of dust and rubble, so I lit a bit of candle and cleared this away. Presently, however, I began to find that I was shelling out something that was not cement. It chipped away in regular layers, and when I took it to the daylight I found that each layer was made up of two parts. One side was shiny stuff that looked like talc and on this was smeared a coating of dark, toffee-colored material that might have been wax. The toffee-colored surface was worked over with some kind of pattern. Now I do not profess to any knowledge on these matters, and as a consequence took what Coppinger had told me about Gouanche habits and acquirements as more or less true. For instance, he had repeatedly impressed upon me that this old people could not write, and having this in my memory, I did not guess that the pattern scribed through the wax were letters in some obsolete character, which, if left to myself, I probably should have done. But still at the same time, I came to the conclusion that the stuff was worth looting, so I set to work quarrying it out with the heel of my boot and a pocket knife. The sheets were all more or less stuck together, so I did not go in for separating them farther. They fitted exactly to the cavity in which they were stored, but by smashing down its front, I was able to get at the foot of them, and then I hacked away through the bottom layers with a knife till I got the bulk out in one solid piece. It measured some twenty inches by fifteen by fifteen, but it was not so heavy as it looked, and when I had taken the remaining photographs, I lowered it down to Coppinger on the end of the rope. There was nothing more to do in the caves then, so I went down myself next. The lump of sheets was on the ground, and Coppinger was on all fours beside it. He was pretty nearly mad with excitement. What is it? I asked him. I don't know yet, but it's the most valuable find ever made in the Canary Islands, and it's yours, you unappreciative beggar. At least, what there is left of it. 
Oh, man, man, you smashed up the beginning, and you smashed up the end of some history that is probably priceless. It's my own fault. I ought to have known better than set an untrained man to do important exploring work. I should say it's your fault if anything's gone wrong. You said there was no such thing as writing known to these ancient canarios, and I took your word for it. For anything I knew, the stuff might have been something to eat. It isn't Guanch work at all, he said testily. You ought to have known that from the talc. Great heavens, man, have you no eyes? Haven't you seen the general formation of the island? Don't you know there's no talc here? I'm no geologist. Is this imported literature, then? Of course. It's Egyptian. That's obvious at a glance. Though how it's got here, I can't tell yet. It isn't stuff that you can read off like a newspaper. The characters are variant on any of those that have been discovered so far. And as for this waxy stuff spread over the talc, it's unique. It's some sort of mineral, I think. Perhaps asphalt. It doesn't scratch up like animal wax. I'll analyze that later. Why they once invented it, and then let such a splendid notion drop out of use, is just a marvel. I could stay gloating over this all day. Well, I said, if it's all the same for you, I'd rather gloat over a meal. It's a good ten miles hard going to the Fonda, and I'm as hungry as a hawk already. Look here, do you know that it is four o'clock already? Takes longer than you think climbing down to each of these caves, and then getting up again for the next. Coppinger spread his coat on the ground, and wrapped the lump of sheets with tender care, but he would not allow it to be tied with a rope for fear of breaking more of the edges. He insisted on carrying it himself, too, and did so for the larger part of the way to Santa Brigida, and it was only when he was within an ace of dropping himself with sheer tiredness that he condescended to let me take my turn. He was tolerably ungracious about it, too. I suppose you may as well carry the stuff, he snapped, seeing that, after all, it's your own. Personally, when we got to the Fonda, I had as good a dinner as was procurable, and a bottle of that old canary wine, and turned into bed after a final pipe. Coppinger dined also, but I have reason to believe he did not sleep much. At any rate, I found him still poring over the fine next morning, and looking very heavy-eyed, but brimming with enthusiasm. Do you know, he said, that you've blundered upon the most valuable historical manuscript that the modern world has ever yet seen? Of course, with your clumsy way of getting it out, you've done an infinity of damage. For instance, those top sheets you shelled away and spoiled contained probably an absolutely unique account of the ancient civilization of Yucatan. Where's that, anyway? In the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. It's all ruins today, but once it was a very prosperous colony of the Atlanteans. Never heard of them. Oh, yes, I have, though. They were the people Herodotus wrote about, didn't he? But I thought they were mythical. They were very real, and so was Atlantis, the continent where they lived, which lay just north of the Canaries here. What's that crocodile sort of thing with wings drawn in the margin? Some sort of beast that lived in those bygone days. The pages are full of them. There's a cave tiger, and that's some sort of colossal bat. Thank goodness he had the sense to illustrate fully, the man who wrote this, or we should never have been able to reconstruct the tale, or at any rate we could not have understood half of it. Whole species have died out since this was written, just as a whole continent has been swept away and three civilizations quenched. The worst of it is, it was written by a highly educated man who, somewhat naturally, writes a very bad fist. I've hammered at it all the night through and have only managed to make out a few sentences here and there. He rubbed his hands appreciatively. It will take me a year's hard work 
to translate this properly. Every man to his taste. I'm afraid my interest in the thing wouldn't last as long as that. But how did it get there? Did your ancient Egyptian come to Grand Canary for the good of his lungs and ride it because he felt dull up in that cave? I made a mistake there. The author was not an Egyptian. It was the similarity of the inscribed character which misled me. The book was written by one Deucalion, who seems to have been a priest or general, or perhaps both, and he was an Atlantean. How it got there, I don't know. Probably that was told in the last few pages, which a certain vandal smashed up with his pocket knife in getting them away from the place where they were stowed. That's right. Abuse me. Deucalion, you say? There was a Deucalion in the Greek mythology. He was one of the two who escaped from the flood. They're Noah, in fact. The swamping of the continent of Atlantis might very well correspond to the flood. Is there a Pyrrha, then? She was Deucalion's wife. I haven't come across her yet. But there's a Foranese, who may be the same. She seems to have been the reigning empress, as far as I can make out at present. I looked with interest at illustrations in the margin. They were quite understandable, although the perspective was all wrong. Weird beasts they seemed to have had knocking about the country in those days. Whacking big size, too, if one may judge. By Jove, that'll be a cave tiger trying to pull down a mammoth. I shouldn't have cared to have lived in those days. Probably they had some way of fighting the creatures. However, that will show itself as I get along with the translation. He looked at his watch. I suppose I ought to be ashamed of myself, but I haven't been to bed. Are you going out? I shall drive back to Las Palmas. I promised a man to have a round of golf this afternoon. Very well. See you at dinner. I hope they've sent back my dress shirts from the wash. Oh, Lord, I am sleepy. I left him to his bed and went outside and ordered a carriage to take me down. And there I may say we parted for a considerable time. A cable was waiting for me in the hotel at Las Palmas to go home for business forthwith. And there was a Liverpool boat in the harbor which I just managed to catch as she was steaming out. It was a close thing, and the boatman made a small fortune out of my hurry. Now, Coppinger was only an hotel acquaintance, and as I was up to the eyes in work when I got back to England, I'm afraid I didn't think very much more about him at the time. One doesn't with people one just meets casually abroad like that. And it must have been at least a year later that I saw by a paragraph in one of the papers that he had given the lump of sheets to the British Museum, and that the estimated worth of them was ten thousand pounds at the lowest valuation. Well, this was a bit of revelation, and as he had so repeatedly impressed on me that the things were mine by right of discovery, I wrote rather a pointed note to him mentioning that he seemed to have been making rather free with my property. Promptly came back a stilted letter beginning, Dr. Coppinger regrets, and so on, and with it the English translation of the Wax upon Talc manuscript. He quite admitted my claim, and trusted that the profits of publication would be a sufficient reimbursement for any damage received. Now, I had no idea he would take me unpleasantly like this, and wrote back a pretty warm reply to that effect, but the only answer I got to this was through a firm of solicitors who stated that all further communications with Dr. Coppinger must be made through them. I will say here publicly that I regret the line he has taken over the matter, but as the affair has gone so far, I am disposed to follow out his proposition. Accordingly, the old history is here printed. The credit and the responsibility of the translation rests with Dr. Coppinger, and whatever revenue accrues from readers 
goes to the finder of the original talc upon wax sheets, myself. If there is further alteration in this agreement, it will be announced publicly at a later date, but at present this appears to be most unlikely. End of Prefatory <laughs>